Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome back, listeners, to the second installment in our Candyman movie review series. Today we are reviewing Candyman, Farewell to the Flesh. This is your co-host, Corbin. And I'm Alan. We reviewed the 1992 Candyman last week. We are leading up to the brand new 2021 Candyman, which we will be reviewing in two weeks. I'm pretty excited for this one, actually, for the sole reason Jordan Peele co-wrote the film. He's executive producing. I think Jordan Peele is a great horror director, writer. He's very creative, so I'm excited about that. Um, speaking of maybe great horror thriller director writer, I don't know. <laughs> a couple weeks ago, we did review M. Night Shyamalan's 14th film, Old. Uh, the week before that, we also reviewed Space Jam A New Legacy. We did the original Space Jam, Looney Tunes Back in Action. And then two weeks ago, we also um, did a reissue, a re release of our original review of Prisoners that we did like five years ago, but with a brand new introduction, just a little bit of a teaser to get you back into Denis because that is coming very soon. Uh, once Candyman is done with leading up to Dune, which I am psyched about. Of course, if you're ready to jump straight into the review, timestamps are in the description below. We have links to all the podcast platforms we're on social media, our Patreon page, so you can financially support us. But no matter where you're at, go ahead and leave us a five star review and a short written review, which really helps us as well. So the original Candyman is well, it's a cult fault. It's a cult film at this point, right? Every a lot right. of people, especially those who like cult horror, probably know or have heard of the movie called Candyman. Um, and I also had heard about it too, of course, going into that review, but I didn't know that there were sequels. <laughs> um, and that, I guess, kind of bothered me a little bit because, you know, if you don't hear much about the sequels, then is maybe that's not a very good sign, right? But, of course, we'll get into that here in a little bit. Corbin, going into this trailer, what what did you think? What did this trailer make you excited? Were you excited to see a, a return to Candyman from the first one? Because uh, you liked it a lot more than I did mm -hmm. when we reviewed it last week. What were your thoughts on this? This is a very good trailer. It does show a lot more than I would like to see. I like to go into a movie, not really knowing a whole lot because I will come up with all kinds of preconceived notions, but it promises to delve deeper into the lore. So maybe I would not go see it opening weekend, but I would be in the theater sometime within the first month. I think I'm kind of with you. I think the trailer, I think, is interesting. I don't know how much it pulls me in, um, but I think I was interested enough last week with Candyman 1 that I probably would try to make somewhat of an effort to see this one in the theater uh, if I had the chance to, um, as we talked about in our... Uh, background it only really had three recorded weeks of being in a in, in the theaters um, and after that it seems to have just dropped off so hopefully i was able to catch it but i think i'm with you i think i wouldn't see it opening weekend definitely not but i would try to at least see it in the theater at some point um because it the last one wasn't as interesting to me um but i think i liked it enough to go see the sequel well listeners if you have not seen Candyman: farewell to the flesh I don't blame you. Like Alan said, we didn't really know anything about the second or third. And we actually even debated whether to review these movies, whether they were worth pushing into the schedule. Considering the new Candyman movie, from what I understand, is going to be a, more of a sequel to the first film, kind of pulling a Halloween and ignoring these ones in between. But you'll have to find out uh, the end of our review, whether it was worth it or not for us to watch Candyman 2. So if you haven't seen it, 
as of this recording, um, it is streaming on Prime Video. Just a heads up for next week, Candyman, Three Day of the Dead. I found it on Hulu, so check around. I'm. It's probably streaming somewhere. These movies are fairly easy to get your hands on. But if you haven't seen Candyman 2 and you don't want to spoil it for you, go ahead and click pause right now. Go ahead, watch the film, and then come back here and click play. We'll be ready to talk about it. It's been three years since the murder spree in Chicago, and author Philip Purcell, the same guy who was in the previous movie, is giving a presentation in New Orleans on his book about Candyman. Ethan Tarrant is in the audience, whose father had died recently after becoming obsessed with the legend. He approaches Purcell, and the pair get into a small fight in a bar. Purcell heads to the bathroom and is confronted by the Candyman himself, as he called him during the presentation to show that he does not exist. Annie Tarrant, the sister to Ethan, arrives at work for just a few moments before she's pulled away to see her brother, who was arrested. Believing there to be a link between the murder of, of the Tarrant's father and Arthur Purcell, the police have apprehended Ethan. Believing that there are answers to Dad's death, Annie and her husband Paul head to the old Tarrant home for answers. Among the vandalized walls and the squatters, the couple find a room with a shrine dedicated to Candyman. Later that day, Annie comes into work to find a couple of her students fighting over a drawing of Candyman. To prove that he truly does not exist, Andy also calls his name in the mirror. Nothing happens, of course, which supposedly proves that the legend is nothing but. That is, until later that night, when Candyman visits Andy, spares her, interestingly, and murders her husband. It's the next day, and it's also Mardi Gras. Andy has to visit Heron Thibodeau, a black market salesman who was supplying the Tron's father with stuff before he died. He tips Annie off that Candyman may have been infatuated more with the mirror of his lover, Carolyn. Then, the legend himself shows and kills Thibodeau, and Annie escapes. Annie runs into Reverend Ellis, a father of one of her students, and he shows the records of born slaves in the area. On this list is Daniel Rubentile, Candyman himself. Annie heads to the cemetery and finds the graves of both Candyman and a daughter. Meanwhile, back at the police station, a detective calls Candyman in hopes to get Ethan to spill the beans. This time, Candyman shows up immediately and tosses the detective out the window, killing him. Ethan also tries to escape, but is killed on the spot by other officers thinking that he killed the detective. Annie runs home where she finds her mother, and she reveals the truth. Long ago, Danny Robentile was tasked by the landowner to paint his daughter, Carolyn. But the two ended up falling in love, and Carolyn became pregnant. The landowner then cut off Daniel's hand, smothered him in honey, proclaiming Candyman. Carolyn then moved to New Orleans, placing a special mirror in Daniel's birthplace, which supposedly holds the soul of Candyman. Come to find out, Annie is a descendant of both Daniel and Carolyn. Their father tried to uncover the truth, while her mom tried to conceal it. And now, Annie is also pregnant with a daughter. Annie's mom dies, and Annie runs through a giant crowd of people celebrating Mardi Gras to the slave quarters where Carolyn's mirror is located. Candyman shows up and almost takes Annie with him before she grabs a mirror, smashing it and destroying Candyman. Many years later, Annie and her daughter are getting ready for bed by flipping through some old family photos. After tucking her in, Annie's daughter just about calls Candyman when mom stops her and tells her it's time to go to bed. The end. <laughs> yeah, that's a good plot summary because this movie was going more intricate with kind of the lore, with the backstory. There's quite mm -hmm. a few characters in this movie. I don't think some of them need to be here. We'll talk about it. But that's a pretty good condensation of what this movie is about and it should be said the reason that i was looking forward to this movie is because bill uh, bill condon direct directed and um i'm sure he had some influence on the writing at, he doesn't get a writing credit but bill condon's next film would go on to win the oscar for best adapted screenplay he he, he won the oscar right after Candyman 2 so mm -hmm. That means you usually don't make a piece of garbage right before you win the Oscar. So that did give me some hope. And, you know, right off the bat, I think this was a smart way to open it up, a smart way to bridge the gap between Chicago and New Orleans, which is kind right. of a whiplash because it seems like Candyman's was isolated to Cabrini Green. How in the world is he getting to New Orleans? Well, this, like you said, the Professor Philip Purcell, he went ahead and he wrote a book. He kind of alluded to that in the first movie. He um, is kind of, I'm going to say he's partially responsible probably for spreading the legend, for keeping Candyman powerful and alive. And um, it, it was a shock to see he does die right off the bat in the beginning. And mm -hmm. he deals with this guy named Ethan, who you just think is a nutcase, but I'm kind of surprised he is humanized through his family. It's not really about any of these characters. It's actually about 
um, Ethan's sister and his mom. And then why did their dad die in this Candyman shrine at their old rundown kind of New Orleans plantation? So that kind of right. twist right off the bat, I I was hooked in the beginning of this movie. Yeah, and honestly, I I saw this character of Purcell and I was like, he looks familiar, right? And I didn't put the pieces together until later when I found out that it's the guy who was at the dinner table scene in that last movie. Um, I think he's in a couple other scenes, but uh, he's like the connection between the two movies here. And of course, also the two cities where Candyman takes place. But when it comes to Ethan, off the bat, you know, the movie's kind of focusing on him a little bit. He's really strange. He stands out in the crowd, right? You know, the movie's making a conscious effort to point him out. So my mind immediately went to, since this is a Candyman movie, and he's in a presentation about Candyman of, you know, the book that Purcell wrote, immediately I went to that, okay, this Ethan has also kind of went down somewhat of a same of the same path as Helen in the previous movie, where he's just kind of become consumed with this uh, legend of the Candyman, uh, and he's here to eventually kill Purcell. I guess to a certain extent, that's me. I was sort of right. Um, it's more of, you know, Ethan is here because he wanted to talk to him about his dad, who be actually became obsessed with the legend of Candyman. Um, but in reality, it's Purcell himself who ends up, you know, ca causing himself to die because he's the one who summons Candyman as a, you know, trying to prove that it doesn't exist or whatever. But it does, you know, bring up the question uh, right, up, right at the beginning if, of, you know, is Ethan you know, liable for his father's death, or is he not? Um, of course, see, his character kind of is a little bit weird, uh, and we'll maybe talk about it in a little bit, but it does have an interesting opening. I think I'll agree with you there. The other thing that very much surprised me about this opening is we actually get Candyman's name right off the bat when we have never known his name before, Daniel Robitaille. Ethan says it right off the back right off the bat, almost so nonchalantly, it took me by surprise, mm -hmm. but that tells me that they're not really going to be pulling punches with this movie, and to me it shows they're already going off of the audience having a knowledge of the first movie. They know, they hopefully will know already know who Candyman is, and I'm glad we really don't have the Jaws effect where we're teased this whole movie with Candyman, because he shows up Probably at the end of the first act is what I would say uh, about 36 minutes into the movie. Annie's husband is murdered by Candyman, which I found to be pretty shocking how they're really not going to be pulling these punches. And the crux of this movie is focusing on what in the world kind of relationship does Candyman have to Annie, to uh, her mom, to Ethan. And I think uh, I really like the casting choices. Um, Kelly Rowan, mm -hmm. I know her from the OC. I watched all four seasons of that. Veronica Cartwright has been in Daniel Boone. She's been in Alien. She's been in tons of stuff. And I always um, think she does a great job. So I got to say, I think they went the right direction with this plot. I'm glad we're not getting, or I'm glad we're not picking up with Helen with the hook and the burned bald head. And she's the new candy mate, candy woman, I guess. I'm glad we're not going right. there. So uh, I really do like the setting as well in New Orleans. Um, I think they utilize um, this well to create a new story that's loosely tied to the first one. Yeah, it seems like a logical step to make a sequel for a Candyman movie because we it, it's mentioned here and there, but of course the focus is on Cabrini Green. But they mentioned that, you know, Candyman, he's, he's a legend that's kind of been around, right? And so now that we brought it here to New Orleans, um, you know, now we've kind of opened up the box to, you know, bring Candyman in. So, it, I mean, it makes sense that Candyman would go from Chicago, a neighborhood in Chicago, to somewhere else now, right? Somebody, some other guy, um, in this case, it's, you know, Purcell has moved the legend from one place to another now. It's spread. So, I mean, it just makes logical sense to go down a route like this, where now it's happening in a different city to a different family, but in reality, they're actually connected. And you brought up another good point where there is that mystery of, okay, I mean, especially when you get you know further into the movie, when it starts focusing on our main character, what is the you know, connection between Annie and Candyman? Because like last time, Candyman spared 
the woman who called her, or sorry, the woman who called him, right? And the question is, okay, well, why would he do that? And of course, we come to find out later that Annie is a descendant of uh, the daughter of Carolyn and Daniel. Um, and somewhere down the line, you know, her father tried to expose it. And then, of course, her mom did the opposite. And now Annie's kind of caught in the middle of the whole thing. So there is that, you know, immediate intrigue of what makes Annie so special, especially when she calls him and he shows up and he spares her but kills her husband. There is an interesting plot line, I think, that could be developed there. And, of course... It spends the rest of the movie more or less following Annie as she's going nuts, following the, the same path as her father, more or less, to d uncover what happened to her father and then also uncover what the connection is between Candyman and this family. It does, I feel like, take a little bit of an idea from Halloween 2 when Carpenter yeah. and Deborah Hill conceived of the idea of what if Michael Myers is Laurie Strode's brother? And at this point in the movie, we come to find out, well, at a certain point towards the towards the latter half, Candyman is the, I think, great-great-grandfather of Annie. It's a little confusing how many greats there are thrown in there, but I did find that interesting that she comes to find out that in some ways she is partially black. She had a black ancestor that she is the uh, granddaughter of a love child that wasn't accepted back then and so i find that to be interesting how they play with that and her mom seems to know about it but she she wants to hide it and that is just causing all kinds of havoc and candy man is saying i am a part of your ancestry i'm a part of your family you can't hide it I'm never quite sure what his motivations are in any of these movies, really. What he wants to do with these women once he kills them. I mean, I feel like we got somewhat of an insight into that in the last one. But with his own family, I don't know. It's interesting. But um, there is some decently suspenseful scenes placed throughout this movie, ones that I can think of. Um, is when Annie says his name five times in the mirror at the school and the kids are kind of holding their breath. The kids have all heard about it and there is that tense moment. And then there's just kind of that sigh of relief once, you know, nothing ever comes from it. Um, there's also that scene where uh, Matthew's dad is walking outside the church at night. I feel like they really captured New Orleans very well. It definitely feels like just a real city. It feels very kind of gritty. And there is this kind of, cloud hanging in the air that it's Mardi Gras and Lent is coming and Lent is supposed to be a time of fasting. It's a Christian holiday, but right up to that is the, let's just call it the sinful time somewhat, mm -hmm. a very gluttonous time, kind of it's Candyman's time where he can really take advantage of a lot of debauchery going on in the city. So right. uh, I did really like that it was New Orleans. It it's a little cliche to have it be back at the house. This is the house where whatever name is Caroline. No, not Caroline. She's in the third yeah. one. You you get what I'm just saying. like Halloween. Just like Halloween. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. yeah. I I I want to go back to what you said at the beginning um, because what I find to be interesting with Candyman in this movie is that. And I guess it also is the same for the previous one. Um, but for a specifically Farewell to the Flesh, the Candyman is more or less like an embodiment of hatred and evil, right? Y you see that he like grabs the mirror when he's about to die and like looks in it. And I guess the mirror becomes like the thing that holds his like soul or something like that. Mm. It's not really yeah. well explained. Uh, but that's what I kind of read it as is the mirror is the thing that holds Candyman. Uh, and so when it gets to the connection with Annie, right, you have that, well, she's, of course, a descendant of Carolyn and, and Daniel, right? And so she, it's, I think it's that, you know, are you going to let your lineage define who you are, even if it ended in a way that was not so great? Or are you going to be able to, like, look past it? I think that may have been something of what they were going for, and that Candyman is kind of there to be that, like, representation of, you know, the my the legend that he is under right is built off of that hatred and it asks the question is Annie going to go down the same 
uh, route as her father, where she becomes so consumed by this legend that it ends up killing her, right? And for the most part, she goes down almost the same route until the very end where she breaks free of that thing and is able to break free, of course, of, and uh, like, uh, and like legitimately or uh, actually breaks the mirror and destroys the legend of Candyman. I think it's somewhat interesting uh, where they take Candyman in connection to our main character. Uh, it's also kind of muddy how it ties into Mardi Gras and whatnot. <laughs> I think it's decently interesting to me, that whole connection part of it. Yeah, and I will say this plot, I think this probably should have been the main Candyman plot. Like this should have been the plot of the first movie because there's far more of a personal connection. It's far more mm -hmm. logical. It never quite made a whole lot of sense why Helen was, you know, going down this route of obsessing over Candyman. And then at the very end, there's kind of this weird twist that it was kind of her that he fell in love with 150 years ago or whatever. And she kind of sees her painting on the wall. That's never brought up in this movie. That's never mm. further played upon that Helen has any connection to this family whatsoever. But I, I will say I am glad they did this. I do feel like it's a smart plot, even though we kind of have already seen this with Halloween 2. Um, yeah, the, the whole Mardi Gras thing doesn't quite work. That is kind of one of my negatives is we get way too much uh, voiceover throughout this movie of the <laughs> yeah, Kingfisher. We'll, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about yeah, it. <laughs> of, of Kingfisher going on and on about uh, Mardi Gras. Um, seen that in other horror movies. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure they do that in Halloween 6. I blocked that movie out, but I think they did. I don't know. But yeah, I think you're right. I think the the setting of uh, Mar uh, not Mardi Gras, the setting of New Orleans is interesting, right? Because before it was set more in like the city, right? So you get a lot of city shots. And this one, you get some, but most of them are like in, most of them are, I felt are more inside, right? Last time, partially true, but there were a lot more city shots. So this one's a lot more yeah. varied. And you also have, you know, the visuals, uh, a lot of uh, interesting religious visuals when it comes to people dressing up for Mardi Gras, almost like mm -hmm. it's something like the From the Purge or whatever at times. <laughs> Um, but there are some interesting visuals here where, when it comes to our setting being set in New Orleans, New Orleans, of course, is known for Mardi Gras. Uh, and so they get to play with something like that. So it does add to for some interesting visuals at times. Um, again, what the connection is really to Mardi Gras is kind of muddy in this movie, but at least, you know, they're trying to go for something interesting here instead of staying with the same city setting like we had with the last movie. Now, all of that being said... I hate to say it, but I do think the main thrust of the mystery isn't terribly gripping. I think in some ways it is still intriguing, but it's hard to make a full movie out of that when I figured out fairly early on that, oh, this has to be Candyman's original home or this is the origin. This is the true origin origin and they're going to be related somehow because I've seen all the Halloween movies and this is also making me think of Halloween four where it's his niece who is kind of the killer and they share some similarities between that. Um, so partially, I think it's kind of gripping, but I also think they can't quite sustain it. Like we do get a lot of um, Ethan in the jail getting harassed by people. We get Annie kind of wandering around the city. Sometimes ultimately I feel like, after a while, I, I already kind of figured it out. I feel like they need to bring it up a little bit sooner that this is uh, her relative. So I, I can't say I was incredibly gripped with the with the main plot or mystery. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I pretty much predicted right when, uh, well, when Candyman showed up and then spared Annie, I said, okay. So my <laughs> guess, because I remembered that last time they, Daniel and... Uh, or Candyman and Carolyn, they fell in love, right? That was the whole, that's the whole story behind it. Mm -hmm. um, I had a feeling that, okay, well, then they're connected somehow. What is she, some kind of like descendant, you know, of the, of the love between these two, of love between these two characters. Yeah. Um, I got that pretty much the scene right when uh, Paul died and she was spared. I was like, okay, so my guess is there's a, 
pretty big connection here. And of course I was right. Um, but I think you're, I'm, I think I'm with you. I think for me, at least the story here, while I think it has an interesting foundation, I think the bigger problem with it is that it's just too predictable. Uh, because again, I pretty much predicted that, you know, there is going to be a connection here. Maybe there's from the daughter or whatever between, uh, and or sorry, Annie and her family and Candyman and whatnot. Of course, there's a, there's a connection. Is there really going to be like a familial connection here? I predicted that pretty early on. And for the rest of the movie, it isn't a very good mystery, I would say. And it feels like things like Dad went down the route of uh, getting into black market deals and whatnot, and and she talks to a guy he he worked with, and she in one night goes like. 40 different places and stuff. I think the mystery here is just not told very well and it's all said and done. I think the foundation's pretty good, but as an overall right. package, I think it kind of falls flat. I do agree with that as well. Yeah, especially getting into some of those subplots where she does visit that black market dealer who also sells snow cones that didn't really seem totally necessary. It didn't really go much of anywhere. I, I'm not quite sure what she even learned from that conversation. Now, maybe she did. Mm. I, it just didn't seem to make much an impact on me. Now, that would have worked if we were doing a Candyman versus Pinhead movie, which I, which I think <laughs> would be awesome. Now, that would have made sense if yeah. she was trying to find the box or something from Hellraiser. But that idea, that idea is nowhere near in this movie. I was just brainstorming how that would have made more sense if we were doing a crossover type movie. But we're not. Right. We're also, um, also the subplot of Matthew doesn't really seem to pay off. There really isn't much of a yeah. point to that. That is brought up how he draws pictures of Candyman. His dad's a pastor. He kind of has like a little shrine to him. He disappears. He's found in the house. I think he disappears again. And then he gets the other kids to save Annie and they get their, they get their Ash Wednesday ashes and that's it. It's really loosely connected in a weird way. Yeah. I tried to make a connection between Matthew and Annie, uh, where Matthew's, you know, he's interested in, you know, in Candyman, you know, he keeps drawing pictures of Candyman, has a shrine filled to Candyman <laughs> in his room, right? So he's clearly interested in, you know, the character of Candyman or the legend. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, Annie just falls into this trap um, by accident one day. So there's a there's a connection between the two of them somewhere, right? You know, they both are infatuated with Candyman um, and they both are, you know, I guess somewhat spared by him, I suppose. Uh, either way, there is... I some kind of connection there, but you're right. This along with, I think a few other things, <laughs> there's just like not enough there to, I think, justify the addition of, of Matthew because while sure, he draws pictures of Candyman, he disappears for a good chunk of the film and then does absolutely nothing when she actually finds him again in the house, um, except for saving her by getting uh, other students to help her survive. I, the connection there is very uh, very weak, I feel. Uh, and so you're right. Why Matthew's in this movie, I don't really know. It's uh, weak at best, I feel. I think it's interesting where he goes, and I like where it ends, but the path to get there is strange. Yeah, I'm curious also what you think of the origin of the name Candyman, because we come to find out it's just some bystander kid that gives it to him after they smear honey on him. That whole sequence, I like that they really showed it in quick glimpses throughout the movie until the very end. We actually kind mm -hmm. of get to live in that moment from Candyman's perspective. But I didn't, it didn't make any sense to me at all that um, this painter, Daniel Robitaille, he's not poor, he's not a slave, he's a free person up in Chicago. Now he was born in New Orleans, but then he moved up to Chicago, fell in love, had a love child. Okay, I get the men would chase him out of town. But it's really hard for me to believe that women and children would go all the way out of town just to see this guy tortured. It's really hot. I mean, women aren't going to be running out there. But yet there's tons of people there. Um, I don't know, that could not even be true. 
uh, that could just be a memory or it could be embellished. But the kid calls him Candyman and then everybody laughs right. and that's and the name sticks. What did you think of that? I, I think uh, the whole sequence itself, uh, they play it a number of times. Mm -hmm. Of course, they chunk it up um, until the very end where they played in full. But as for the sequence itself, I think it's kind of interesting. Uh, it's uh, I think that. I guess I like the idea of like just some kid making fun of him, you know, who's there while they're doing this horrible act. That's what starts the name Candyman, right? I think that there's an interesting connection there of the of this monster being born out of something horrible, right? The, that's been kind of a running theme um, with the character of Candyman since the beginning. I think that's interesting, uh, but I think you're right. Of course, it's overplayed. It feels for a group of people to be out there making fun of him and. Uh, and whatnot to see his hand get cut off and stuff. Um, especially, uh, where are they at? Are they in, they're up in Chicago at this point, right? So Cabrini Green. that's right. Yeah. So you're right. And we talked about this last movie, you know, where it's just kind of, it feels like it's a lot to have happened <laughs> yeah. in the Northern part of the United States around mm -hmm. this time. Yeah. I think there's some interesting stuff here, but you know, it's, Again, nothing that really uh, I find to be super interesting. Yeah, no, I agree. But I think I would have preferred a more literal approach. I don't really like... Okay, I've, I'm coming in here with the knowledge of Candyman 3. In Candyman 1 mm -hmm. and 2, is it... It said that uh, he was a painter, right? He was an artist? Right, right. Yeah, okay. they, the story was he was a painter who was tasked to paint uh, the daughter of a landowner. And That's then right. They yeah. fell in love, and of course, the whole story the whole story happens after that. That's right. See, I would have preferred a more literal approach to him being called Candyman. I would have preferred if he was, if he literally made candy, if he was a Willy Wonka type figure. I don't know, goes around on a candy cart, something like that, mm -hmm. and then he falls in love with this lady or something of the kind. I think that would have made a lot more sense. I would have liked that better. I usually, I mean. Yeah, I am surprised because most horror movies um, take a literal approach in naming their villains where they will be directly involved with the creation of a certain product, which then becomes the menace of the movie. Right. That's that's really not um, here at all. So it did make any sense that they would smear honey on him and then the honey would be sweet, and then the kid would deduce from that to call him Candyman. I don't know if kids ate honey and they called honey just candy back then. To me, it seems really weird. Um, I don't know. Uh -huh. It's probably like, I guess probably most people wouldn't care. But nevertheless, I thought that was strange. And I tend to not like when they reveal characters' origins names, like in Solo, A Star Wars Story where we figured mm -hmm. out why he's called Han Solo. Just don't go there. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, that's a, it's a, that's a pretty, pretty bad example of uh, <laughs> characters learning their names. But uh, yeah, I, don't I like think it. one of the other things here too is um, this movie moves like has a really strange pace to it, right? Because yeah, for example, when we meet the character of Annie, she drives to work. She drives through the city and then into the old, into the like bad part of town. Mm -hmm. um, and she's there for like uh, 30 seconds of screen time, I think. Yeah. Um, we meet two of her students. One of them's painting on a mirror who she like, she doesn't do anything, uh, but they spend time with her. But then we also meet the character of Matthew before that. And there's something set up because he's drawing a picture, right? Of I think it's, I think we get to see that it is Candyman at the time. Um, and then she rushes off to see her brother. Um, and that's really all the setup we get for Matthew. Uh, there's like a scene later where he's like fighting with another student. Uh, but he becomes a more prominent figure later on in the film when he that goes missing. It's just this, it's got this kind of a strange pace. And then at the end of the film, this is where things just kind of go off the rails, especially the last day when it's actually Mardi Gras. Um, I wrote down everything that uh, Annie does because it's kind of ridiculous. So Annie first, of course, her, her husband died the night before, right? Annie then goes and a couple of her students tell her that Matthew has disappeared. They meet, they go to her mom's house. She goes and visits Reverend Ellis, visits her brother, visits Thibodeau, takes a shower, visits Reverend again for the slave births and finds Daniel, visits Daniel's grave, 
Ethan then dies after that, and he shows up at the police station and then runs home, finds the truth out from mom about Daniel and Caroline and the and Caroline's daughter, and the mom dies. Then she runs to the new house, or sorry, the old house, and finds Matthew. And then she runs to the slave quarters and fights Candyman. Like that all happens in one night, <laughs> right? So this pace, the pacing of this movie is kind of just all over the place. And I never really feel like they ever take the time to like breathe and have anything like stick for me. Because when this movie ends, we're just like, okay, well, whatever. Like nothing, it felt like nothing really was ever pointed out and they sat on and tried to really like, you know, get it into your mind or sit on it and try to have any kind of breathing time or anything like that. It just keeps moving on. And before you know it, it's over. And it's only like an hour and 35 minutes. So it's like not long at all, but yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Particularly the sequence where she does run. Honestly, Alan, I'm confused. Is that where she lives, where she goes to take a shower? Because so, I'm confused too. <laughs> In my notes, we find it. I'll, I'll, show you, I'll tell you what I wrote down because I was just as confused as you were. Okay, so in my notes, when she like runs away after the snow cone thing, after Thibodeau, she runs into some right. random place and takes a shower, right? And I say, wait, yeah. where is our where is our MC? Where is she? Where did she go to take a shower? I have no clue. Yeah, I, she just goes to some random place and takes a shower, then walks out. I I have no idea where where she went. Yeah, I mean that really confused me there because that I don't think that could be her apartment because it doesn't look like we already saw her apartment in a couple different scenes, and we already saw her in the bathroom, and mm -hmm. that doesn't look like her apartment. This looks kind of like a rundown place. Um, maybe that's where Ethan was living and she had access to it, quick access to it. I don't know. That really threw me off. I thought she just ran into some, the first, you know, door that she could find that was open. And then she just felt like, well, nobody's home. I guess I'll just take a quick shower. Like she Goldilocks and the three bears and right. she just runs in there and she's going to eat the porridge and take a nap in their bed or something. <laughs> Um, right. yeah. And then they do, uh, I believe they do a fade to black. They do fade to black a couple times, which I understand there are trying to delineate, you know, different sequences, different acts, passage of time, but you're right at a certain point, the movie just hits overdrive. And even in the beginning, I'm very confused about location and time because she drives to the school and then she drives immediately to the police station and there's this guy who to me looks like Clive Barker. If you've seen his picture, he's got earrings and he's got this kind of bomber jacket on and he's like, Annie, Annie up here. And, um, at first I was confused whether I was confused who that was. I almost thought that was, that was, um, Ethan or mm -hmm. somebody, uh, cause they both have facial hair. I have no idea who this guy is. And the mom's like, you'll make a wonderful dad. I'm like, who is this? Yeah, I was and confused too. That's Paul's introduction is really weird. Yeah, it's Paul. It's Paul's introduction. And then, so I, I didn't even think that school was in New Orleans. I thought that school was like in a different city. And then I thought she was just in town meeting a friend. And Paul was like their friend who owned a restaurant. Come to find out he's her husband. Mm -hmm. And that, that <laughs> really shocked me. I'm like, what? He's her husband. I was like, how how was that established? That was a terrible establishing connection. Yeah, um, no, you're right. Yeah, you're right. I'm I'm very flabbergasted within the first act, and then once I get everything set, they're like, okay, you've got everything figured out now. Then they hit warp drive, they kill Paul, and then from there, it's just a race against time. It seems like it's mm -hmm. it's weird because it they are trying to time it with Mardi Gras, where they're like Mardi Gras or whatever it's called. Yeah, Mardi Gras. Fat Tuesday, they're like, it's tonight, folks, and then it's going to be Ash Wednesday. I get they're trying to draw these spiritual themes connected with that. We get the weird Jesus walking through the street with his cross, and it mm -hmm. ends with them getting ashes on their forehead. But yeah, these are really poor established connections that I, I never quite understand. So definitely agree with you um, on the pacing of it. Um, oh, one other sequence that I forgot that was one of my favorites was when Candyman kills the mom and while she's crawling away, um, there's, it's storming outside. So there's that flash of lightning and then Candyman just vanishes. Uh, mm -hmm. I, th I thought that was a well edited scene. I, well, since you brought it up, Corbin, what, what are your thoughts on the religious imagery of this movie? Because we brought it up last time, right? We, we talked about it last time, how, you know, it definitely it follows somewhat of the same story of Christ. 
um, and other biblical stories. You know, this one I feel is um, more, I guess, uh, blatant, I guess is the word, uh, with, you know, it's religious imagery, imagery where you actually have people walking, dressed up with crosses, went out across the street. Um, I think last time there were a few crosses here and there. I think they uh, cut to a stained glass uh, window a couple of times, if I'm not mistaken. But again, I think the uh, religious imagery here is a lot more blatant than the last time, I guess is the way I can put it. What are your thoughts on it? Because uh, I don't know how much of a connection I, I understand is here. Um, it's a weird one, to say the least. Um, I, like I just brought up, the weirdest one was Jesus in the streets carrying his cross and then people dressed up in hoods with skull masks saying, mm -hmm. repent, nothing to do with Christianity whatsoever. And we do meet Matthew's dad, who is a pastor. Now, I think there was a lot more there they could have explored, but they didn't. He does bring up the point saying only God can like save him now. Um, that doesn't really happen. Um, but there is some affirmation that God is more powerful than Candyman because in the end, they do go to church to get the ashes on their forehead, which was really st strange to me. Mm -hmm. um, it's not like they're getting baptized or anything. And that signifies the beginning of Lent when Jesus went into the desert to be tested for 40 days. And so to me, it would have made more sense if this was taking place during Lent, where we could have seen Candyman more of in the accuser, more of the Satan role, um, accusing our main character here, tempting them to come to their side. Um, you know, I guess I appreciate the effort, but to me, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, I, yeah. I, I'm glad it ends on a positive note with them going to church and kind of showing some power of God there, but uh, it, it's weird to say the least. Yeah, it, it is. It's it, it's it is weird. I think that uh, from what I'm gathering, I think what they're trying to go for is with, with or at least with the character of Annie um, is, you know, she becomes starts to become consumed by Candyman, right? Uh, no matter what she does, she can't get away from him. Uh, and it gets to a point where she becomes almost like she's infatuated at the very end when he's like trying to convince her to come with them and whatnot and give up. Right. And then she breaks free by breaking the mirror. So I, I almost feel like, you know, because of Annie's journey where, you know, her family ties go back so far that, you know, it kind of began somewhat with this horrible act, which is the legend of Candyman, right? There's already a parallel there and a connection with Annie. And so when she breaks free from that, I maybe they're trying to make a connection where now she's uh, repented for what happened or, you know, whatever, when at the very end when she's in the church and she gets the ashes on her forehead, you know, maybe she's forgiven mm, for something yeah. or for what, you know, the whatever she was consumed by, almost consumed by before. But right. you're right, the the connection overall still is, it's weak, I feel. it's I don't necessarily understand, uh, you know, where they're trying to go with it. Because there's more than just that, right? There, it's all over this movie. You know, mm -hmm. I just want to know where exactly they were trying to go with all of this. I can <laughs> see it to a point, but, you know, the, the, the whole, like, Mardi Gras sequences, uh, a lot of them have a lot of these characters in it. Yeah, we're going to hold our thoughts for Candyman 3, but they do make Candyman even more of a, he died in a very christ way you'll mm -hmm. see what we're talking about in the third one um they changed his backstory actually it's, it's very weird oh, but interesting yeah yeah you'll see it's it's surprising mm -hmm. but um yeah but nevertheless i was hoping they would have made Candyman more of a sympathetic character in this one after he kills her murders her husband i was almost expecting um a completely different movie i was expecting him to be more of like the ghost of christmas past and he was going to take annie back to the past and we were going to be exploring his um past and he we would come to see that he was just this sympathetic guy that was totally wronged and she would come to be more so on his side and understand why he has lived to kind of be this menace and I thought it was, I clearly we didn't go down that road at all. I thought we were going down a completely different road because he right. talks often like come with me and 
understand your history and see my side. And I'm like constantly waiting to see all this and it never really comes up. So except there is those flashes. She gets those visions. I was expecting it to be a little more straightforward, but we don't ever get any of those. Um, you know, the other thing is I didn't really like the jump scares in this movie. I was wondering um, who's going to bring those up. Yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> I don't like them. Um, I'm with you. Um, jump scares are awful. Makeup effects are terrible. And so is the CGI. If you can't yeah. do it right, then don't do it. It looks awful. If you listen to the background, you know that the Toy Story also released the same year. And these effects are, ooh, they're not good. <laughs> they only use it for one scene, but, uh, oh, man, does it stand out. Whew. Uh, but back to your jump scares, too, Corbin. Uh, you're right. Uh, I got, and luckily, I think they disappear after about the halfway mark. But there's a lot of fake jump scares. Like, to a point where it just mm -hmm. makes no sense why they even try to make it a jump scare. For example, when they go to visit the old house and there's squatters and whatnot in it, uh, Annie walks off to go look at something. Paul is left in the room alone after he twists his ankle. Um, and he walks out onto like the deck and then she goes up and like, you know, taps his shoulder. And that's a jump scare of her, of her tapping his or, you know, pulling him, trying to get him to turn around. Right. It's like, why in the world? Why would they, you know, try to make a jump scare out of that? They do it so often in the first half of this movie. It's almost ridiculous. Luckily, they yeah. chill out a little bit in the second half. But there are a lot of fake jump scares that are just downright annoying because they're like so weird in what they're trying to spook the audience with. Yeah, there, there's just so many things like you're talking about when they're in the house her well, the house she grew up in and which... It's kind of weird unless that house was passed down family to family. It's been enough generations that I'm a, a little surprised they're still there and then they moved for some reason. But mm -hmm. yeah, like when Paul goes out on the out on the balcony and he sees those guys kind of messing with their car and he yells at them and so he honks the horn and he's just like, come on guys, nothing ever comes of that. Nothing ever yep. comes of the people living in the house because she goes back there um, once or twice and those people are nowhere to be seen. They don't have yep. anything to do with the plot. Um, it's just really weird. Um, also the detective Ray, he is a one dimensional bad cop character, just a really yeah. dumb character who is just over the top aggressive with Ethan. He just like makes it his mission to take him out. He also think he's really slick. Um, I don't understand why his character is in there. Um, yeah. I've already brought up the Kingfisher's radio um, monologues are way too much and they don't build the atmosphere at all. I ultimately just kind of find them to be annoying at a certain point. So there is just stuff in this movie that doesn't make sense. Yeah, I think somewhere there is a longer cut that has more of these detectives in it because I feel like they're trying yeah, to... I believe Or it. they were supposed to play a bigger role, right? Because, for example, a great example is... Her name is Pam. She's like the secondary or... She, she doesn't have as much screen time as uh, the guy you were talking yeah. about. But she is mm -hmm. there at the crime scene. She does dress in purple later and she tells Annie that... I understand the truth or whatever, you know, and that's when she's like running away. I think she was, she's running away from home. Uh, it feels like she's oh, supposed yeah. to have a more important role, but she doesn't. And the same thing with the other guy, detective, hang on. I've got his name here. Uh, Ray Levesque is his name. He's, I feel like they're both supposed to have a lot more important roles, but the way that this is edited, mm -hmm. it, they don't have that at all. So it, there's just like, like it's kind of there but like totally was cut out if it was like there's a longer cut somewhere and they had you know a lot more screen time and had more importance to the story but you're right kingfish oh my goodness uh that's a character where you know it, does it remind you of halloween 2 um i know we brought up another no no not halloween 2 halloween 3 uh where they had like the tv screens and it's like gather around kids for whatever <laughs> commercial thing uh season of the witch that's the one 
Yeah, yeah, they are pulling from more better known horror movies with that, I feel like. Yeah. He's annoying. You're right. He hasn't really had much. I think at, after a certain point, he just kind of repeats himself of like, well, I guess what he's trying to say, like, oh, spooky, you know, get out, whatever it is before Lent and stuff. It doesn't really <laughs> add much. It's really silly. So those two detective characters, Alan, have you seen Predator 2? I have not. No. Okay. Well, if you ever see Predator 2, then I'll be curious to see if, if you feel this way at all. But to me, they're really making me think of Bill Paxton and Maria Conchetta Alonso's characters where it's um they're male and female detective partners mm. and uh to me that's that's what it was going off of I don't to, I don't know to me it seemed like they were just trying to crib off of things that we have already seen before um once again there's not really any resolution I guess Annie gets off the hook um I feel like her brother's death was needless and just kind of dumb and just to make it a tragic thing, how the cop just shoots him in the back. Mm-hmm. And I, honestly, I'm getting tired of people thinking people in custody are um, ripping these other people apart. Just like literally ripping their bodies apart when they have no weapons whatsoever. There's no possible way. And so, yeah, the cops, the cop lets Annie go. And then she smashes the mirror, which I couldn't help but think of Poltergeist, how... They end up in that like swampy pool at the end with the dead bodies and she gets rid of Candyman and then it jumps to like a couple months later or something. No, no, a couple years later because she's had the daughter and um, how does the daughter know to say Candyman in the mirror? And I don't know. I, honestly, Alan, I hate I the ending. It is so dumb. Yeah. You know, uh, one quick thing before we end this. Candyman's rules are weird. When Purcell calls Candyman, <laughs> right, and then when Annie calls Candyman, there's like a delay. Like he takes his time almost to get to them. Um, but later on when uh, Ethan's being investigated, um, the detective calls Candyman to freak him out and hopefully to get answers out of him. And he shows up almost immediately. Uh, it's weird that that's the one that he gets to break through. I guess his rules, if that's what they were going for, if they had rules for him, I guess, that why does he show up all of a sudden when, uh, when, when the script needs him to, but waits until a different time every other time he's called in this movie? He doesn't have any rules, I guess. I guess this is how it is. He, he nope. comes whenever he feels yep. like it. Yeah, you're exactly right. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's always very murky. I mean, in some ways, I kind of like that. It keeps us on our toes. We never quite know what will happen. Um, yeah, he could either show up in that moment or he could show up that night or days from then. Um, you know, and I mean, I, I kind of like that because it does keep us on our toes. But at the same time, it it could be seen as convenient for the plot to just drive the plot forward is yeah that guy's beating him up in there and he's like let's call him now and then he says mm-hmm. his name and then that gives us an excuse for ethan to die and for the right. plot to move forward yeah uh it doesn't doesn't quite work but right but yeah but i gotta say it ending is dumb where she says don't don't say that and just covers her mouth and then it just cuts to credits and i'm like you kind of just ruined the ending of this movie <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it would have been interesting to leave it as if like the daughter calls Candyman and then it cuts to black. I think that that would be an interesting ending. I would have preferred it, I guess, if either go there or don't go there Mm -hmm. because, you know, either just end the movie with the ashes on the forehead and then walking out of the church and they've saved the day or have the daughter and then the daughter is laying in bed looking up says his name five times and then she falls asleep and we have Philip Glass's great main theme playing. And then all of a sudden in the shot, you just see his hook start to caress her hair and then it just fades to black or quick, quick cut to black. And I think that would have been far more effective than Annie jumping in to shush her little girl. Well, since you brought up Philip Glass, what are your thoughts on the score for this one? Because we did bring up last mm. time, we were like, this is a pretty yeah. good score. Of course, Philip Glass is kind of well known for his scores. What are your thoughts this time around? Because yeah. I have some thoughts, but it's not necessarily with the score itself, but more of how they use it. I think Philip Glass 
copy and pasted his score from yeah. last time. It's yeah. pretty much the same thing. I couldn't really pick up on much of anything new, maybe something new. Um, like I said, the score is great, but it's like, I don't know if he even tried to do anything different here. It's almost identical. So I was disappointed about that. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, but uh, like I mentioned, the, how they use it is different. Different story. I think it's again, it's a good score. It sounds good. Mm -hmm. It's just it's used so often. Like I don't think there's hardly a scene that goes by in this movie, or hardly anything that like, there's hardly a moment of silence in this movie. It feels it feels like music is almost constantly playing in the background. Which after a while, it's true. Kind of gets really annoying. And like I mentioned, there's yeah. never really a moment where it feels like this movie is given time to breathe. I think part of that is due to the fact that the score is just constantly playing in this movie. So while it is good, it is from Philip Glass after all. It, they don't stop. They don't ever give this movie time to breathe. They don't ever like to have, I guess, a quiet moment. And it kind of ruins the score for me, honestly, because I just keep playing it over and over again. Uh, either the same main theme or just if it's like, you know something else it's just there's always something yeah it doesn't do anything to really create any kind of mood or atmosphere like i felt the first film really did it it was a very different feeling um and oftentimes it was very pondering just these static shots looking at our lead here we don't really have that unfortunately um i also feel like there is that scene of annie painting like a self-portrait or something you know, Candyman mm. was a painter as well, but that's not really brought back around unless it's just to show that she has her great great grandfather's genetics for painting running through her or something. It doesn't they, like I said, like you like no, like you said, good foundation. Just everything on top of the foundation is kind of on roller skates. It's struggling to stay upright in some right. ways. But right. with that, Alan, I'm curious where you're going to go with this one what is your rating and recommendation for Candyman: farewell to the flesh Candyman 2 i think at the end of the day it ended up being more of a annoying experience than anything uh mostly with just a couple of small details that just egg me for when it runs on for an hour and a half the constant music kingfish that keeps coming back that really doesn't add much to the movie those are the two probably big things that are just like annoying right not that big of a deal but they are annoying nonetheless but like we've been talking about while the foundation of this movie is interesting um and could build to something you know much better i think that they built the house out of rotten wood and it pretty easily falls down because after a certain point it feels like nothing is really taking the time to really develop uh things just constantly are on the move we never really stop to take time uh to really build any kind of atmosphere or really build any kind of character there's nothing it feels like we're, we're so we're moving so fast we're moving you know so constantly that this story kind of goes by as a blur and before i knew it it was over not in a good way either, because I don't think I'm going to remember this movie tomorrow uh, when we finish with this review. I don't think it's a very good movie. I think that there is a better film in here. Uh, I think that there, you know, maybe if there was too much cut out where now it's just taken away too much. And the story we got is unfortunately a hindered experience. But I don't think overall that it's a very great film. I'm going to give it a four. I'm going to give it a not recommend. But I think that, you know, had it been in, in the hands of a different director or a different editor, maybe there would be something else to pull from this. But from what we get, there's not much. Candyman Farewell to the Flesh surprised me. In some ways, I was expecting something good because of Bill Condon directing, knowing his next film would win him the Oscar for Adapted Screenplay. But in other ways, I was expecting something not great. Well, I kind of land in the middle. I really like Kelly Rowan and Veronica Cartwright and the twist of their secret tragic family history. This is a smart direction for the sequel to go. I really don't want to see Virginia Madsen running around slashing people with her burned bald head. I appreciate the first film is still canonical but smartly steers away from the Lyles and into Candyman's backstory, bringing up the question, where are his descendants now? There is some good direction, creepy atmosphere, and semi-smart defeation of Candyman, but I just didn't find this plot to be particularly compelling. I really didn't need another entry, and this sequel doesn't quite justify its existence. Don't get me wrong, 
This is better than I was expecting, but it just can't live up to the original or do enough to carve its own place. Candyman Farewell to the Flesh receives 5 stars out of 10, with a mild not recommend. Yeah, it kind of seems like we're in agreement. Uh, I think mm-hmm. you said something that I guess I didn't say, but you're right. I think that it's a sequel that isn't exactly necessary, it feels. It doesn't justify why it needs to exist. So I think you're right on that one, too. But the question remains, Corbin, even though you didn't recommend it, would you buy it on Blu-ray? Because I, I think I sniffed that you that you might. You know what? I might, but it would have to be very cheap. I mean, I'm I'm talking okay. sub five dollars. Um, I think there is enough here that I I I might return to it someday. And by might return to it, I probably won't return to it. <laughs> but there is still that possibility. I think Candyman one and two work well enough together. Mm-hmm. Now very mediocrely in that sort of way but for me i I might get it but honestly i i it probably won't happen just being honest gotcha yeah i'm i probably won't end up buying it um it would have to be real cheap like people somebody gives it to me and say here here's a (laughs) blu-ray then i'd probably take it but uh yeah i can't say that you know (laughs) can't say that i would be um really out looking for this one at all Well, what other recommendations do you have for Candyman 2 for this and just to watch after this? So what I was kind of thinking of throughout this, it was giving me um, vibes of Mike Flanagan's The Haunting of Hill House, which is a Netflix um, TV miniseries that came out a couple years ago. I feel like they, they have similar themes of lineage, of tragedy, of this house with this history that I feel like are in Candyman, but they're done far better in The Haunting of Hill House. Um, mm-hmm. That was actually my favorite show of the TV show of that year. Definitely check it out. I do own that one on Blu-ray. It's great. Gotcha. I'm going to say I got a couple. Halloween 3, uh, I'm going <laughs> to say, which is, I forget what our thoughts were on that. We reviewed that a long time ago. Um but Halloween 3, I'm going to say. I, I guess I'm going to spit out Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, this still, I guess we didn't really bring it up, but it still has, or the first one had some 80s horror vibes. This one kind of still has that, but Nightmare on Elm Street has is somewhat in the same vein, so I'm going to recommend that as well. All right, listeners, well, the question after the show is, with a threat of Candyman, and you could only live in Cabrini Green or New Orleans, where would you live? And you can only pick one. I feel like New Orleans would have a lot more space than Capriti Green. Because it's subject to a whole city and not just a neighborhood. Yeah, I think that too. Um, New Orleans looks a little more fun than Uh Cabrini Green. Cabrini Green was pretty much gangland territory. It was pretty scary and extremely run down. Whereas this, at least in New Orleans, it seemed to have a little bit more character, a little bit more culture that was interesting right all right well corbin thanks for joining me sure thing and listeners definitely want to stay tuned because we're going to be continuing this Candyman retrospective leading into the release of Candyman 2021 but before we get there we have to record Candyman day of the dead so that'll be next week and you don't want to miss that so we'll see you then listeners Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, 
Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide. I'll, show you, I'll tell you what I wrote down because I was just as confused as you were. Uh, I suppose shower, right? <laughs> the first two times he's called, which is from uh, Purell? Is that his name? I don't know why I'm second guessing Purell. myself on this. Who's Purell? Uh, the author's name. Pretty sure that's Purcell. hand sanitizer. Purcell. Oh. All right, you don't have to um you don't have to include this, but I did check out your score for Halloween 3. Yeah? I think it's like a 1. It's a it's a 2. It's a 2 out of 10. 2, okay. <laughs> All right. That's about right. That's about right. Just 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 so you know, since you were wondering about that. <laughs>